Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our first podcast. This is View from a Height with me, Karen Casey. And me, Patrick Matt-Nicholas. And what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is taking a satirical but serious look at life in Ireland and across the globe, talking about in- issues relevant to yourself, whether you're on the bus, train, airplane, wherever you're listening to us uh, today. Um, we'll look at topics like culture, society, politics, things like that. Plus, perhaps just to kick off, something that grabbed my attention um, this week straight off the bat would be freedom of speech. Had a lot over the last few weeks with you know Trump and Brexit things and people sort of not really knowing where the line is with freedom of speech and, and sort of what is it and there's one video in particular on YouTube I saw during the week um, it was a girl in Yale University over in the states and uh, basically what they're trying to bring in there people have heard of these things of you know safe spaces things like that and you know so people not having their opinions I suppose challenged um, and in the video she was actually she was actually shouting in uh, one of the college administrators faces at a protest um, where she was saying that this is our home and she was sort of, I suppose, well, roaring in his face, really. And uh, she was saying, well, college isn't an intellectual space, you know, but that's essentially not what college is at all. Like, so are we sort of losing sight of what freedom of speech actually is? Or, or what, what, what's your opinion? What do you think freedom of speech is? Well, I feel like at the moment that we are, for the simple reason that the way it's, it's working out at the moment with colleges, universities, you're getting to a stage now where people can't say what they want. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, this thing called the safe space. And in some ways that leads to a problem where you have, at the moment, whether it's the media, whether it's the colleges themselves, whether it's the student body, you've got this thing happening where it's, unless your views are kind of progressive views in terms of, yeah. like, if you're pro-choice, if you're, you know you know, pro-gay marriage, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. then your views aren't welcome if mm. you're not viewing up that certain, you know, that certain range of views. So pretty much we have to be not critical of the other side, but the problem is with free speech, no matter what you do, no matter how you get into the subject, you're going to be hypocritical in some way. The problem is trying not to be hypocritical. Now, we could say we're, you know, we support free speech and, you know, you're very progressive and all that, but then you do not listen to what the other crowd say, for yeah. example, the pro-life, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But then you're being hypocritical because you, you can't you can't be pro-choice if you don't have the pro-life because then there's no argument. Mm. The problem with safe spaces is that obviously they're set up for a very good thing. There are people, of course, that need them. Well, 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 what, is, what is a safe space? Well, a safe space essentially is where anywhere in a college, a university, um, you will have kind of access to, you know, maybe if something's going wrong in your life, depression, that kind of thing, that if you're being bullied, something like that, that you have people you could talk to, different, mm. you know, systems put in place to help with that. Now, it happened in a university in Chicago. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I was reading an article there recently. <laughs> There's no need to laugh about that now. <laughs> um, so the university in Chicago. The university in Chicago... Um, a professor was sending out a letter to first-year students, to freshers, kind of going, yeah, welcome, blah, 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 you know, mentioned the safe spaces, but mentioned them as a warning. Mm. And there was a huge backlash over this because essentially uh, he was sending out kind of triggers saying that, like, um, safe spaces, grand, they're there, however, don't stifle, you know, opinion and that kind of thing. Mm. So, of course, backlash comes back to him where everyone's like, oh, well, he's completely insensitive. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's a particular uh, religious studies lecturer. And he said himself that he doesn't necessarily care about the opinion, but his colleagues that have got into that situation and have left their jobs over it because they couldn't deal with the pressure coming from parents, from students, from, you know, other academia, that kind of thing. Mm. So it's kind of more or less... The freedom of speech, you have to be very careful about what you determine as freedom of speech, because obviously, you know, things like Islamophobia, you know, bigotry, that kind of thing, mm. you know, anti, being maybe anti-religious, you can have those views, you have to, tr- you, you can't offend people, but at the same time, people have views, they should be able to air them. Yeah, I don't know if that's something that you agree with, but this is where you get into that very, very messy thing of what is free speech, what is hate speech. Yeah, and I think that's, I suppose, the discussion that's probably happened in the last five, ten years in particular, well, the last even five years, that we've got back into this space where we're trying to decide what is and what isn't. And I think technology has pushed that in a certain direction and 
you know different groups looking for you know certain rights whatever but i suppose what, what grabbed me as well in in this area i suppose even during the week i was listening to um many people know the joe rogan podcast mm-hmm. and he had a guest on um a couple of weeks ago um a, a university lecture in the university of toronto and he like he was a lecturer in psychology and basically what they're trying to bring in uh, or what they are bringing in um in the state of ontario in their human rights code is that certain words um, now under their legislation will be protected or they have to be used, for example, around gender. They've actually come, come up with seven, uh, up to 70 pronouns to actually describe gender. It's not just male, female. They've come up with this whole other plethora of words to, to describe it. And he was basically making the point that he's not going to use them. But as the university, as an employer, is sending him warning letters that he has to, has actually been, for freedom of speech, has been written into law, essentially, that he has mm-hmm. to use these terms. Yeah. But he made a very valid argument is like racial slurs aren't included in it. You, you, do you understand what I mean? Like it's 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 very you know there's a very grey area, and then you're sort of you're you're getting pe- you're forcing people to use certain words. Yeah. How is the how is that freedom of speech, or how could that be construed as freedom of speech? Yeah, because that is the problem. Like a lot of countries around the world have what they call freedom of speech. Ireland, of course, is one of them. However, laws and government, in some ways dictate or the judiciary will say what is and what isn't free speech mm. like it was interesting looking at most countries it says that they have freedom of speech unless it impacts on the morality and the well-being of the nation <laughs> Do you know? oh, really? yeah. so <laughs> it's kind of you know anything that would be and you can see in certain countries um maybe like russia and things like that that you know they use that statement to the best of their ability when it comes to the government and curtailing what the press say mm. and you know oh we have freedom of speech however you're not allowed to do this or you can't say this or you'll be liable for that and mm. then you know they're self-censoring themselves then mm. whether it's society it's journalists or whatever mm. but um, but sorry to go across, but like maybe just bringing that i suppose back to home or back to ireland like i suppose what we're in you know our mid 20s late 20s now like and we didn't live through say the censorship of the church but we know that it, that it did happen or whatever with the banning of certain books or what yeah, could yeah. be said on some tv or whatever like as a country do you think we have we do have fairly good freedom freedom of the press and things like that and you know what i mean like we've, we've got out of that sort of age of censorship and yeah i think we have like i know ireland kind of consistently comes up as one of the best countries for freedom of speech and freedom of the press as well mm. um it's always kind of consistently there and will be one of the best in europe the country has grown up a lot i think a lot of people have more or less seen that you know censorship of the past is something that you don't want but it's still kind of it just goes back against that whole issue of what can you say what can't you say now mm. we said before that like you know obviously you had terms there, the universities bring in terms, you have to like use mm. these terms or not use terms at all. It's now I'm not out to offend anyone because, you know, myself, you know, these are labels that are, you know, in use. Mm. But I you have to you can't you can't not use labels. Yeah, like you, you have yeah, to, I mean, like you to be able to differentiate between like they yeah. and them. Like you have to be yeah. able to like you can't you can't go around and say like fine, you know, you know, you you might use the term gay, use the term lesbian transgender mm-hmm. that's fine he she it you know that's whatever it may be slightly offensive but people that go around saying you know well i'm you know gender fluid mm. i'm non-binary yeah you're kind of like well if you're non-binary you're not a computer program you know? <laughs> and yeah yeah in the greatest respect that is not like because there are people that do say they are non-binary and like i'm not setting out to offend anyone on that yeah yeah but you can't live in a world, I don't think, realistically, yeah. where everyone has to walk around on eggshells thinking to themselves, I have to be careful what I say here, what I say there, in case I offend someone. Now, there can be very offensive language, and if there is something, you know, there's different things that are said that can be very offensive, mm. but you don't have to go so far the other way where everything, you know, you can't put protection. Like you can't keep protecting people from everything. It's a bit like kids, you know. When you're bringing up a child and you're protecting, you know, like yeah. as an as a you know mm-hmm. parent or whatever, you know, you're you want to protect them, give them the best education, that kind of thing. But you can't block them completely from the outside world. Mm-hmm. You know, the internet has completely changed everything. Now, when we grow up, I mean, 
thinking about my childhood, you know, there was no such thing as the internet. You had no information source whatsoever unless it was the news on TV, which back then when you had four channels and half the time you were lucky if two of them worked. And I had to read out of a book. But it's very easy now these days for people just to type in something to Google and obviously see things that they shouldn't and that's bad. But at the same time, when it comes to labels and things like that, you sh- you know, you have to be careful. I don't think telling people what they can and can't say is a good idea because when you do that, you're sending out a form of commands that essentially people will get quite annoyed with because we both know that urban areas, rural areas, obviously there's a different culture going on in, in different ways, but you'll see that what might be acceptable to say in somewhere like Mayo or Galway might be acceptable mm. in Dublin. And that's a cultural thing because Dublin would be more multicultural. We'll say things of race, like things that might be said in the country that literally there is no, you know, you know, malice intended. Yes. Nothing. Yeah. Things are just said. It's just like um, a couple of years ago when Mary O'Rourke came out and she said that, well, you know, glads we're great. We're working like blacks. Do you know, yeah. that is a phrase that is said in the countryside, but nobody at any stage, if you meet anyone, would mean that like, you know, the people but, but, but that has taken up particularly offensively. Yeah, it is, it is taken offensively, yeah. and in some ways rightly so. Mm, mm. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of maybe an innocent thing where it's like that's just a thing people said years ago that in a lot of places in the country, especially with a particular generation, yeah. you know, they still say it, but they're not thinking in their heads about slavery or anything else. It's just so, it's just a, a yeah. saying, like, you know. But, like, yeah, that's a good point, I suppose. But I can it. see how it is offensive to people, and obviously people, you know, don't say it anymore but even though it has come out like you know they had they did make a big thing at the time Mary O'Rourke but she is a politician she probably should have you know known better than to say that but at the same time it was just a slip of the tongue of something that she probably would say talking to someone Mm. you know but like when you when you say yeah when you say like the generational thing I think that's a that's a good I suppose angle to come out as well Mm. like there's this media term now where you have a younger generation you know the sort of snowflake generation Mm. I suppose have they referred to them like you know are they not like is it sort of a life experience not knowing sort of history what freedom of speech actually is or sort of you know they're living maybe sort of a, a virtual identity they're sort of yeah. like they're in their own echo chamber of opinion there's they don't yeah, get well, I they're mean, not challenged like yeah that, exactly well, it's a bit like the universities i mean you know like we're, as we started off like i mean if someone comes in to um a room full of you know students and they're just like yeah, well, you know, Christianity is great, drugs are bad, the mm. whole room's going to go uproar against them. Mm. Do you know? But then if they come in and just like, yeah, I got fucking stoned last night, I'm great, and then it's just like, oh, yeah, do you know? Mm. But there's a thing there, a culture where the conservative opinion is like, I'm not a supporter of conservatism, but it's. I can see frustration in people when they can't express it in certain places, like universities, or whatever. Yeah. Now, like, like, so just on that, like, it seems to be big. It's no longer say, well, like uh, the ideal or the utopian would be like fifty-fifty conservative yeah. liberal. Yeah. But now, but would you not think it's sort of eighty, ninety liberal now and sort of ten conservative? Yeah, expressly. Like, the problem is, is that, and you'll see it reflected with Brexit. You'll see it with you know Trump, things like that. That um, you know. If you tell people they can't think a certain way or try and, you know, tell them their views are wrong, you end up getting people, you know, they quickly find themselves not represented. So then you find a figure, you find something and you put, you know, your energy into that. So Trump comes along, he doesn't, you know, give a rat's arse about anything and he Mm. says all this ridiculous stuff and this offensive stuff. But because there's people that think that, that have been told that, well, you know, your views don't represent we'll say the US, for example, at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of, they're going, uh, well, there are views and we want representation. So then people will go off and vote for this guy that's, you know, what we would view as crazy, but, mm. you know, it's them, he's legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? And their views not expressed. Do you, do you think yeah. we could ever have a hard right in Ireland like they do in other countries? Personally, there's an educated answer to that and then there's a simple answer. And the <laughs> simple answer is probably not because we're just too lazy. <laughs> Not lazy in the bad sense, but just like, ah, sure, look, you know. 
Like, even if you watch that lot of ad at the moment, and what are you going to do? Like, how, how are you going to work this new island, you know, because this guy goes and buys an island with a lot of money. He's like, yeah. ah, sure, we'll figure it out. Yeah, do you know, it's that yeah. kind of like, I don't think anyone could put the effort into a hard right here. Yeah, yeah. Because, but, but, you but, know, as Irish people, it's very hard to stay angry all the time. <laughs> yeah, but like, even a couple of weeks ago, I remember they, they was it the National Party, that what they wanted to call them, they wanted to set up in the Mary oh, Hotel in Dublin. Tipperary. Yeah, they wanted to set up a, a party on the right of politics, conservative mm-hmm. views and whatever, and they were, like, again, freedom of speech, they were essentially, through social media and all, essentially shouted down, for want of a better yeah. phrase. You see, this is the thing, yeah, like, I mean, I don't agree with them. I don't agree with the National Party at all. I don't agree with any of their policies. I don't agree with the guy either that is the leader of them. However, you know, they sh- like they shouldn't be shouted down in social media because all, all that will happen from that is that we're shouting them down, which means then that they'll probably get more followers, that people that might support them, but not necessarily in public scenes being shouted down. People then start getting annoyed about why aren't their views again being represented and mm-hmm. it feeds into this thing. Mm-hmm. So if something like that happens, that's why you will end up maybe seeing the right, not making a breakthrough, but definitely getting a presence because there will be people that feel, and a lot of it comes down to those issues again of migration, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. like even when it comes to the migrants from, let's say, Syrian refugees, you know, a lot of people in Ireland wanting, you know, to bring them in, a lot of people as well, not, and they will have their different reasons for that, but they wouldn't say it in public kind of thing because of the fear of being called racist hmm. but the, well, whether those fears are legitimate or not yeah but that's the, but, but have we sort of never had to sort of face that in say like do you take somewhere like france like for example like being over in france for the soccer during the during the summer and being in paris like all around paris is essentially ghetto wise yeah. to a certain yeah. extent you know with, with migrants that have come in but maybe our geographic position and our history of direct provision and getting mm-hmm. immigrants into ireland it hasn't really happened so we never really had to face it no, like, I mean, the biggest influx we ever had of migrants into Ireland was when the Eastern Bloc joined the European Union. Then we got the Polish, the Lithuanians, the Latvians. Mm. But there wasn't a huge... But, but they, to a certain extent, either integrated in yeah. the boom or went back. Well, or, that's it, like, you know, a huge amount of them integrated, because at the same thing, there wasn't really much of a difference, like, you know, except maybe language, because at the end of the day, these guys, you know, were in some ways conservative, and a lot Ireland was, I think, particularly conservative, even still in the 90s, mm. when some of them started to come over, but then obviously the big influx came to 2004-2005. But they were Catholic, a lot of them, and they were white. So there wasn't a major difference where people didn't really take notice. It kind of gets a little bit different when you have people from Africa, Asia coming in, Middle East, because that's a completely different culture. Mm. And a different way of life. Mm-hmm. But you were, you were but saying before, you were saying before in, in Mayo, didn't there was huge integration of yeah, you the see, community? Yeah, well, what happened there was uh, these two guys, uh, a guy and a girl, obviously, um, came from Syria in 1976 on their honeymoon. Right. Now, why you would ever choose to go to Mayo on your honeymoon, <laughs> I think there was obviously a mistake made, but they must have read Costa oh, with, Mayo. with the Mayo tourist board on there. So, yeah, so they come anyway, they like the place, they come back the following year and buy a house. And with that, then, you know, they have kids, you know, cousins come along. Next is a little community, but nothing numbering more than 10. Right. But when you live in rural Ireland, especially in a town, they're in Ballyhonas, kind of South Mayo. It's still a small town where you will say, for example, you're 10 people, but then there's another 3,000 population that are all Catholic and very Irish. And, you know, you're, you've, you're given no choice but to integrate. Like, they have no choice. You couldn't, you know, not go play in sport with the local kids. You couldn't, you know, not go to the shops. You couldn't not, you know, go to school. Like, you, you, they had to, your kids had to get educated. They had to go to the local school. There's no other option. Like Yeah. But when that happened anyway... Life seemed to go fine, more of them came, and now with the result of that, you have what I think is the country's largest mosque, but it's in Ballyhonas and Mayo. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? And but, but you were, not that you remember we talked, you mentioned this before, but like that they did sort of integrate, like there wasn't a set program or whatever, no, but like no. they, they just seemed to very naturally join in the community and there was no yeah, issue. See, yeah, because they were kind of a say on their own, but then the willingness from them there to integrate 
that was there too. You mm-hmm. know, they mm-hmm. wanted to be part of the community, you know, yeah. and then eventually what has happened now since the generations have gone on from the 70s is that their kids that are being born there now have pure bogger Mayo accents. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, Ahmed is playing on the local team, you know, yeah. he's getting his county medal, like, you know, and, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. and that's the way integration should be. Like, yeah. even we have Indians in Swinford the same as well. Like, they had to integrate in their Muslims. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, you know, Adorn and... And you are going around, and you know it's the GA kit, it's everything yeah, else, you yeah, know, yeah. and the speaking Irish, Indian, and yeah, you know, yeah. whatever else, you know. Oh, it's fantastic, yeah. Definitely. But that's just the way it has gone. Yeah. You know, the problem though with larger urban areas is where you don't have that because what happens there tendency is large groups come, like you were saying, ghettoization in France. Mm. You know, Dublin happened to put people into Blanchardstown, Balbriggan, and different places. Mm-hmm. Next, and then they don't, yeah, they don't actually really integrate because there's a lot of people there so then you start seeing them just hanging out together in schools and then gangs not yeah, gangs yeah, but like, no, you know, yeah, like yeah, a exactly. group of people yeah, yeah. and they tend even though a lot of cases people do but the, a lot of maybe the generation that came first that had kids here yeah they're not I would see in some cases not fully integrated mm. into society mm-hmm. where if one family took off to Mayo or Roscommon or Leitrim they, they would sort of have choice yeah, they'd no, have no choice but to fully get integrated yeah, you know? yeah okay very good, very good. Um, the, the other thing that I suppose grabbed my attention during the week as well is um, I was actually over in Scotland and I was chatting to uh, a guy I got to know there, uh, fairly well, a Finnish guy, mm-hmm. um, and he served in the Finnish army because they still have conscription in Finland, yeah. which I thought was fairly, fairly interesting. And as it, I was looking at it during the week and, you know, you sort of fall down a bit of a rabbit hole on, on Google things. Um, and I was looking at the sort of countries that still have it, like Finland being, mm-hmm. being a very good example, like they're not in any military alliance, not in NATO or whatever. Yeah. Um, and basically the way it works there is when you turn 18 in the autumn of the year you turn 18 uh, you're you get a letter essentially from their sort of draft board you're assessed and you have to serve in the army for i think it's about 120 days uh, everyone does and then you become a permanent reservist for the country till you're 50. Okay. Uh, if you're a conscientious objector or like a pacifist mm-hmm. you can join their civil service for about six months or a year uh, and do it that way and if you don't uh, if you're conscripted and you don't serve and you refuse to do either of those options and um, you can be sent to jail so okay. you can be sent to jail for about 170 days and you're fined mm-hmm. um, but what I thought was interesting is like they have maintained it and it seems to be a big part of their culture and like a right passage it seems to be for their young men and if they go to jail um, it was in the media there um, I think it was last year I was I was looking at it they uh, they have it like other countries like a petition if you um, make a, a petition and it can be sent to their parliament and the limit is or the the smallest uh, it has to be is 50,000 signatures so they brought someone brought forward a petition in um, Finland to get rid of the service and to actually get rid of the uh, the fine imprisonment yeah. and they only got 20,000 signatures so right. the population it highly supports conscription still in Finland yeah. and it seems to be a major part and I suppose my question to you was um, should we bring it into Ireland um, do you think it would ever be an option? Um, because obviously we had the FCA, which became the, the reserves okay. for the army. Um, but so should Ireland have conscription compulsory? Yeah, I just thought I just thought it was an interesting one. Yeah, should should we? Um, well, as a neutral country, that probably goes against the whole idea of neutrality. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I suppose I was looking at it more yeah. like the way the, I finished it. I know, like, we have a horse for, you know, neutral, there is that, but yeah. like that, it seems to bring a positive benefit. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the, the other thing just before, or before we go on, that I remember as well that sort of said about it is it's seen as a raised passage um, for them to do this, and if they, they can delay it till they're 28 and go to college mm-hmm. or whatever. But if they go to, apparently, if you go as a young Finnish guy and you go to uh, to an employer with a CV or whatever, and in the previous two years, if you haven't done your military service or you're in college, you wonder what you were doing, right. and you're very unlikely to get a job. Yeah. So to them, society-wise, it seems to be quite a positive thing. Um, um, yeah, well, personally, I would be in favour of that. Um, the likelihood of it happening, probably slim in the short to medium term, but I would be in favour. Um, simply because, like you said, you know, people tend to um, have a positive experience from it. Um, simply because in a lot of areas around the country, like, you know, there is this sort of thing, especially with young men, um, idleness to an extent. And you see that reflected in, like, antisocial behaviour, graffiti, that kind of thing. And I often think to myself that maybe 
if there was something like conscription, obviously no one's going to go out fighting a war, but like if they were, you know, once someone turns 18, sent off for a year, you know, basically, you know, thought rules, you know, brought into routine, that kind of thing, then it probably would stop a lot of that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, definitely. And I think, I think as well, like we, we, I think we did sort of as a country sort of view the FCA and the reserves as a bit of a joke before. But I think oh, yeah. it's been very, oh, yeah. I think it's been very much restructured now in the last years into what you actually do. Well, like I think it's, it's again just had a quick look at that as well, and it's you know it's weekly they, they get together and they yeah. do exercises well, weekend like, and in yeah, summer like yeah. well with the FCA like mm. even when I was a teenager like you know my I had a friend his father was a corporal in the army and he was going around trying to get like you know all the lads in even though the might, someone might might have only one leg but yeah grand you're going to the FCA to <laughs> right, be fine yeah, yeah, yeah. and essentially like it was sold to us I'm sure all you're going to be doing is drinking marching and making the tea maybe rise a flag every now and again yeah. and that was the view of it like you went off for two weeks just to do nothing like you know, over a period of maybe a year or a couple of months so like you're never going to take that seriously so yeah. if this was if this was to come in that you would have conscription then that has to be all overhauled Mm. A proper program has to be put in place. What are they going to do? What do they want to make these guys do? What do they want people to get out of it? Mm. Do you know, like you were saying there, if you're a pacifist, whatever else, um, do you know a year in the civil service? Obviously, then if there is something wrong with you, like in terms of physicality or you know, oh yeah, yeah you whatever, you're you, have to, you, have a, you have an exemption, of course. Um, but like even there now, recently I was going through the South Circular Road, in Dublin Eight, and. Um, I saw a Seamus Heaney poster and I was there kind of going, oh, that's great, you know, that's been there now for months, I've been looking at that and there was another poster somewhere else that would be considered a more affluent area that was all graffiti, but yet the one that was in at this junction between Inchicore mm. and James's Street was fine. Mm. But then recently the other day I see that it's completely uh, changed and it's all, you know, just graffitied and mm. torn to bits and you're just kind of like who did that why would you bother you know what you know goes through people's heads yeah even on the lowest line between smithfield and the um and collins barracks you have all these pictures now i'm assuming that it's people from 1916 and their descendants so you have a top photo of them and then the bottom of you know taken mm. in 2016 mm -hmm. but every few weeks you see the corporation replace them because people come along and graffiti the bottom ones they kick them in they break them and i just think that regardless of background conscription like that if it just drilled a bit of matters into you yeah because obviously you know a bit of pride in yourself a bit of well, pride yeah but a bit of pride in the country as well like you yeah. walk around the city and it's not just the dublin thing you'll see it in other places there's graffiti on statues and things like that that you wouldn't see in any other country mm. and it needs to be sorted out like because it is annoying to see it like because i mean I have different views on politics, especially when it comes to that whole Irish and British thing. Mm. But still, as an Irishman, I'm proud when I see different statues, you know, things like that in, in the cities. And I wouldn't dare graffiti them. And when I see that graffiti, and a lot of cases by people then that'll go off with a different political ideology mm. that'll tell you that, you know, you're wrong and they're right, that mm. really annoys me. Yeah, so yeah. I think that, you know, if it, if it means that, you know, Basically, people cop on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, but also, yeah, just in, in taking that with the way we sort of view, like, say, the army and different things like mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, when you when you look about look at it, like, if you take the UN peacekeepers, mm -hmm. for example, like, we're the longest, you know, one of the longest serving countries in that, one of the most positive records in it. You know, we're you know sort of world renowned in how we we view that, but we don't, you know, when they come home, it's like, oh, really, you know, great to come home, but we don't sort of view it maybe like other countries. Like, I think we're sort of there. Not that we go around the world cleaning up mm -hmm. after other people, but yeah. you know, you know the way the server in the Lebanon at the moment, yeah. the Golan Heights. That's essentially to stop a war and to stop one country invading the other country. And like the navy in the Mediterranean is picking hundreds of migrants mm -hmm. out to sea every day. You know, really yeah, every day. Like, it's like a lot of things. I think, like, I don't know what it necessarily changed because it's more so an Irish thing. Kind of, uh, we won't overreact now. Mm. Do you know, or in America, when you know people come home from, like, uh, if they're on, if they're out in, you know, Afghanistan or, Iraq yeah, or somewhere, yeah. there's huge fanfare, and they're out with the flags, and everyone's dressed up in red, white, blue, and there's a drum, you know, there's, yeah, do, well, there's, yeah, a, big, yeah. there's a big fuss made of it. Yes. And then what happens in Ireland? It's just kind of like, it's the uh, the close family, and uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. might get a you might get a piece on RT News, 
Yeah, yeah. No, like this one. Like I'm not. I'm not suggesting we have this huge, big, expand the army, make it huge or whatever. Yeah. It's just. I, I just thought it was an interesting way of looking at it with mm. the conscription. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It's not. You know, in wartime, you have to be. You know, mobile or whatever. I just think it's an interesting one to, to look at. You know. It's very good. Very good. And um, the other one, I, I know we were talking about that. You want to talk about? I suppose you touched on there before was the urban rural, and I suppose. For example, with you being from Mayo and me, me originally from Dublin, but living most of my life in Wexford, um, you, I suppose you've lived in Dublin now five or six years full time and grew up in Mayo. So, in terms of <laughs> in terms of the urban rural, like what does that look like, and are we moving more and more away from? I, well, you take something like that. Remember, it was on it was on last year. The Glen, remember the Glen Road documentary? Yeah, it's very it was very funny. I wouldn't be the big Glen Road when I was younger, but that sort of thing is like we went from basically a rural country into uh, urban fair city starts there's a good yeah. you know cultural yeah, exactly. analogy so you, you know are we continuing to move to more urban and I think I remember reading somewhere recently there's a book I actually read on, on Ireland in 2050 which is a great book it's written by an Irish guy and he talked that the urban sprawl around Dublin by 2050 mm-hmm. will be the size of LA which is incredible yeah. because we, we're not going to get rid of this thing where you can build up yeah, and we're just going to build out. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that, that's maybe for 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 another day. But like, are we heading that way more continually oh, urbanly? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been in Dublin for six years. Um, Dublin's fine. It's a nice place. Lots to do. It's the capital city, of course. But it's not the whole country, if you know what I mean. And, uh, of course, you expats in Wexford uh, <laughs> tend to have a view that, you know, the country ends at Liffey Valley. And oh, well, I wouldn't, yeah, but some people would, yeah. yeah. But a lot, of, a lot of Dublin people would, especially from certain areas, you know, there's nothing else in the country, what should be going down there? For, yeah. you know, why would we need to go anywhere because we have everything here, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the whole thing with the um, urban-rural divide is that emigration was always a thing out of the country. And that has always continued. Now, we tend to migrate. People always try and first, you know, go first to the urban areas. And then if that doesn't work out, they leave the country. Mm. Now, the problem with Ireland is that they've never developed really the urban areas. Now, they have developed them to an extent. But still, Dublin is power in the head. They're developing it. But Dublin needs a huge amount of development at the same time. For example, the transport system in Dublin is horrendous. <laughs> the transport system in Galway, Cork is horrendous. And in Limerick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. You were, you were telling us before that Limerick is the only city in Ireland that's built on a grid system. Yes, Limerick is the only one that has a grid system. Now, I don't know who thought up of that, but yes, it's on a grid. So when you look at a map, you'll see Dublin as a big semicircle, and then semicircles within semicircle with a cross. Yeah. Same in Cork. It's just a loop. And, and in Gal- Ireland, yeah, and like in Galway, Gal- is just Galway. You don't spaghetti. You know, someone threw spaghetti in the middle of it. Yeah, Limerick yeah. then square box, and then. Rectangles inside that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's probably because we, we never really planned the city ever, did, did we? No, we just sort of like everything was kind of like, ah, sure, weren't the Vikings there? Should we throw a few huts on it and it'll be grand, you know? Yeah. And, and someone and comes uh, along to New York, I love what you did with the cave. <laughs> <laughs> and the, in, what was it, in Dublin as well, our, our capital is the only European capital with a rail link to the airport. Yes. The, when the Dart was built, there was like, from swords, there was what, there was, as we say, white fields, there was green fields. Yes. <laughs> For Christmas. There was green fields all the way from Dublin out to the airport. And did we build the Dart? Does that make sense? Nope. No, we didn't. And, um, like, we don't have a metro there's probably a huge need for that as well but we're trying to get that Lewis fixed you know even though we're connecting rail lines that technically we couldn't connect them because oh they don't match what Swedish company yeah, built Swedish one. and, and Japanese Ger- or, was it German, German the, the gauges of the yeah. tracks don't match they're different so what happens in, has anyone thought what happens in that instance so do we have a different <laughs> tram altogether that drives through the connecting ones or how does that work <laughs> like do you know like yeah. I even I heard say on the radio you know cross city works connecting the city and you're kind of like, the city I don't think needs connecting, it needs expansion. <laughs> it does need connecting too, with different public <laughs> transports, but I, yeah. I don't know how it's going to work. But, the, but then on that, and the urban rural, like, what was it, what they call the Western Rail Corridor? Yeah, well, and that the, was open between, um, But was, I went to Limerick, but you see, there wasn't, they, they, they closed down a huge amount of the rails yeah, but in it the wasn't, 1960s. But it wasn't, it wasn't only one man and his dog was using it, like there was no one using this. Oh, but that's right. the thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that, that, like I was saying there, like the problem, like they closed down a huge amount of rail links mm. in the 60s because they weren't profitable. Mm. So they closed them down. 
Now, it had just so happened with some of them that they've had to come back then a couple of decades later, a bit like the Lewis, when they got rid of all the trams out of the city. They went, actually, no, we need a tram. So they have to go and put trams back in and up, reopen rail links. Mm. But there is a lot of them that aren't profitable. Now, that's a problem, with whether it's Erin Rotherin or the Department of Transport. Um, it's too expensive. Mm. And the, the cost of running the service is too expensive for who's using it. Because, I mean, for me, even, like, if I was... Oh, going from Dublin because I don't drive in Dublin because you know obviously you have buses you've got trams you don't need to so it's only an expense to have the car so you can get the bus you can get the train bus 23.50 if I know the driver drop me outside the house grand you know three and a half hours <laughs> there's, there's the rural no, there's, no one in the Valbregan is going here Mick drop us at the door yeah, there. no one's doing because <laughs> no one knows their neighbour that's, 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 that's it yeah we'll get to that so that happens I can get the train which as a return is 60 euro a lot of the time. For, say, say again, train from where? From Houston to Westport. 60 return? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's too expensive and that's why people don't use it. Now, yeah. you get a lot of people because, you know, I, I know people that they're, they're in good jobs, like, you know, and they go like, oh, well, I get the train now because it's more comfortable. And I was like, well, isn't it great that you can afford it? Yeah. Um, yeah, fly to Amsterdam or Berlin for the same price. Yeah, yeah return. Like, yeah. So, but what the train does is a stupid thing because some of the links were closed closed down. So the train that goes to Mayo, instead of going across in a line to Mayo like the bus does, the train goes from Houston down to Port Leash and then up again yeah, yeah. <laughs> towards uh, Westport. But then, of course, you have to get off then for me at the faint of another junction yeah, yeah. where you take another train that only literally like a ghost train sort of just slowly <laughs> rises up to this platform. It's in the middle of nowhere. You're just standing in a field of rushes with a load of random people going, is this the part where we all get shot? <laughs> so this thing backs up, you get into it, and then goes off. Foxford, next stop is where I would normally get off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it ends at Ballina. Right. Meanwhile, the other fancy train has gone off to Castlebar, eventually to Westport. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah, it, it's, it's the issue of affordability and cost of running the service. Mm. And at the moment, um, you know, they're in a lot of trouble where they say that unless they get a huge amount of money from the government, they can't run services or they have to put up fares again. Mm, so mm. if they put up fares again, that's going to like make loads of people go, you know, yeah, that's that's can't the, be using this, like, yeah. you know. But like, but like even, even being in somewhere like, like you know, Cork and obviously the People's Republic, as they whatever down there, it's it's not a huge ca- like in terms of a second you know, capital yeah, city. Well, there's no, like I said, I think I said to you before that Ireland's any country in the world, in the Western world, I should say. That has no second major city. Yeah. Now, well, some, people, be some people will say, oh, well, Belfast. Well, we want to go into that now because yeah. Belfast, it's, it's, different. Yeah. it's a different thing. Right? Different kind of fish, yeah. So, mm-hmm. here, three biggest cities Dublin, Cork, Limerick. Mm. Dub- uh, Cork, not on a par with Dublin whatsoever yeah. in terms of transport, in terms of the size, in terms of jobs, in terms of anything. Yeah. What are you talking about, boys? No, <laughs> obviously, they have their own little charms, and that's great. <laughs> they do, yeah. But as a city, well, yeah. If you build a city on a small island in an estuary, there's only so much you can do. You know? <laughs> and that's what's happened. You know? yeah. And Cork's like a ghost town half the time. You yeah. know? And yeah. you've said that yourself. Yeah, in the evening. Yeah, no, it is. That's you put me on the spot now. But it is, no, it is. It is. Um, but like, it's, it takes something like Galway. Like, there's always a buzz in Galway. Anytime you go to the west, we're just all headers. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, but in that, like you were saying, yeah, transporting, you know, you're trying to get around the harbour or whatever. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's ridiculous. But in terms of a second and third city, if that was developed or I don't know how redone what, what way you'd put it like but that'd be a great you know it is with the two university or GMIT and you know Galway like it's it's a great city like you know it really is and could be developed I wish well that's it but it's, it's a political will it's culture and all that kind of thing mm. as well now back to the actual question of the Euro divide in terms of, so the whole thing there, what I was getting at, that we kind of sort of went a bit off the thing on, was centralisation. Mm. Now, they tried decentralisation a couple of years ago. It didn't really work out. But again, that's because you have a cosy, you're in, you know, you're in Dublin, you live on the Lewis line, you're on the Dart line and everything's grand. You know, there's all these different restaurants and different cultural things and everything mm. else. Why would you ever, in God's name, relocate to Lockeray? Do you know, for a government department. Yeah. And be so far from Galway, which there isn't half of what's in Dublin in, and very difficult, and all that kind of thing. So unless the cities were developed on a par, obviously they don't have to be up to the same scratch as the capital, because the capital has to be the capital. Mm. But you have to have something there that people go, oh yeah, I want to actually live there. 
and you know bring kids up there because the problem is at the moment is that that's not happening everyone especially in country areas are going uh right there's nothing going on anywhere because even cork limerick galway very scarce jobs in certain areas everyone's going to dublin dublin the problem at the moment they're at capacity you know i don't think the the city can actually cope with the amount of people that are in it now Trying to get in in the morning is exactly yeah, trying to get out. Like you see that. I mean, why should you see like if you were at nine o'clock and you're going the opposite way on the M4, and you see coming in from Maynooth just traffic standstill, Sounds trying good. to get into Dublin. You know, mm-hmm. so that just goes to show you. Even the Lewis in the mornings, it's like sardine cans. People can't even get into it. That's at full capacity. Mm-hmm. So centralisation is something that has to be addressed. And there's kind of two things where. That's, you know, it's the city, it's the county culture, it's centralisation. The urban-rural divide goes down to, as well, to kind of cultural nationalism, as I would call it, and in some ways, political separatism. Mm. Now, the reason why I'd say that is... To Dublin media? Is this what you're getting at? No, to Dublin media. (laughs) The Dublin media. Yeah. The media. So, it's that, but there's a big cultural difference in country people, and... Again, it's that kind of maybe farming communities, small communities. It's kind of, you know, as, as the Dublin people would say, those cultures. But the cultures have a certain set of values, and we also have cuteness as well. But, yeah, but how did the values differ? The Dublin? values differ just because of, I think, well, they're always just going to be different because, again, it's a style of life that hasn't necessarily changed a lot in 60 years. Oh, this changes the technology about maybe how you do certain things. Uh, Dublin, though, there's so much that people in Dublin don't understand about rural life because they've never lived in it. And there was a great... Um, I was at Michael Harding last week in the, Dub- in the Dublin Pavilion Theatre. Let's get the plug in there. <laughs> great place. Um, I was there, and there was one great thing that he said that really... Because this is the columnist for the Irish Times. Yeah, he's the yeah. columnist for the Irish Times. And mm. he, he said one thing about how um, a farmer um, that he knew died, mm. and how he said every winter or whatever it was, you might be driving along, you might be doing a journey from Dublin to... He lived in Leitrim at the time, in a place mm. called Arigna. And um, he said, you'd see that light on, and it was like a comfort. Mm. Now, in Dublin, because I was even just looking at houses there coming in on the two modems of public transport I had to take to get out here, that took an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> but um, you're just kind of like, you don't get the effect in terms of what light, for example, can do. So you know someone's in a house, there's like there's life there, there's everything yeah, else. Yeah. Here, it's all saturated by street lights, so even the Christmas lights don't have an effect. Like, you don't realise, even when I'm going home at Christmas time, I love looking out the window of the car or whatever, and just like looking at people's Christmas trees that they'd have in gardens or in their own windows or just random things off in the distance where you'll see flashing lights because you can see everything. Mm. So that farmer died. That light went off in the house. Mm. Now he said that any year you come back now, that light isn't there. It's gone. And he goes, it's really kind of depressing in one way, but that the life has gone out of there. The fields and things are overgrown. Sheds are rotten because there's no one there tending to them. So this kind of very close connect with people mm. that you know you'd have, or markers and things like that, doesn't exist in Dublin or in cities in general. It's not a Dublin thing. It's in cities in general, large urban areas, because they just don't. They haven't experienced it. But you know, the light goes out. That's it. If you live in a place where the lights never go out. Yeah, it's very hard to understand that. Yeah, you know. But I think as well, there's a there's a great there's a great quote actually by you know Brendan Bean, the writer, and mm-hmm. he'd be obviously one of our, you know, I more a book there one time. Yeah, but more yeah more like you know known yeah. as being from Dublin, being from an urban area. And I remember he, he one of his well he's many great quotes, but the one I, I always love is like Ireland's a great country to get married in and to die in. Mm. And I think in rural life, there's certain that certain thing about weddings and about yeah. death as well of how it's yeah. handled. That's, yeah. that's, I, uh, just like, I mean, we'll always give you a good send off. Yeah. You know, it's the last hurrah. Yeah. And uh, I was actually listening to a documentary today on Radio 1, and um, it was to do with a guy um, who was from Mayo, again, yeah, great place. And uh, he actually emigrated to the States in the 60s, but joined the US Marine and ended up going to Vietnam. 
Right. And it was due to a couple of people. There was him. He was from, um, I think it was Ballyhonas again, actually. Yeah. So he was from a village outside Ballyhonas. And there's another guy from Ballyhadreen, Roscommon. And um, they're just saying that, like, you know, he went off to America and then he comes back, you know, a couple of months. But he hadn't told the family that he was actually going to Vietnam. So he just came back all of a sudden, just out of nowhere. But he had, like, you know, the Navy suit and all that with him. And, again, invited to weddings for no reason whatsoever. Just kind of like, oh, he's, he has the suit. You know, he looked great now. <laughs> and around to every dance going, they had them at all the dances. And because he had the car... So, driving around the county, yeah. as your man said, there were dances in Castle Bar and Kelchim, you couldn't count the places. Yeah, yeah. So, they do that, but then, as well, it's this whole thing of kind of um, showing off in a good sense, where it's kind of like, ah, Jason, would you look at him there now? Go, get the suit, put on the suit. So, he's there walking around this army suit, so everyone knows what he's doing. Mm. But you can put that as well into weddings and funerals in the country, because what you'll see is that people... It's not a bigness thing or like kind of we're great. It's that we want to, this person has done something that's good mm. and we want to show that the best we can reflect it or just remind either everyone or the person themselves mm. that they've done something. So a wedding again, big celebration. And of course then a funeral, a lot of cases, if you go to the country, if it's a very meaningful one, it's never about the death. It's about the life that was lived. Yeah. Do you know? And you'll see that then in things like wakes and all that kind of thing, waking up all night with the corpse. Like when my aunt died a few years ago, as two of us waited up um, with the corpse. Now, it used to be that the men would stay all night with it, mm. but it ended up with just me and my cousin. And there's kind of a thing about that, you know, people talking about, you know, the life and all that. And it becomes then eventually like by the time you get over all this kind of emotional roller coaster and you have the funeral, you're not, like I felt that, you know, it wasn't a death in some way that it, but it wasn't, it was a celebration, but like it was a celebration of her life and a release as well. Because she was very sick at the time, but it's only when you kind of go through that process mm. of the wake, everything that goes with that, the kind of the whole pomp and ceremony in terms of yeah. priests coming and then all these different things. But, but isn't it as well, it's that recognition and the unsaid word as well as well. Look, I think, if we take the last couple of months and yeah. what you what you would nearly call a national morning, a national funeral mm-hmm. for member Anthony Foley, Munster Rugby Coach, yes, yeah. and like you know that was Limerick, you know, still relatively mm-hmm. rural yeah. or whatever. But like you know, just the symbolism and the things yeah. that happened, and you know, the coffin coming down yeah. to Thomas Park, and you know, singing the yeah. Shannon Shannon song. There's like a whole there's a whole ritual mm-hmm. that doesn't exist in other countries. Do you know, other countries, like, can you ever go to a funeral in England, like, and it's just like, we're all sitting here, it's usually just the family, there's no friends or anything like that, or there would be people that knew them, but there wouldn't be, like, what happens, for example, in the villages where I'm from, well, say, for example, someone's died, the whole village, regardless of whether you knew them well or not, they'll at least go to, like, you know, sympathise on, mm. you know, the when the coffin's being brought to the church, it might be at the funeral, but, like, yeah the whole, there's this kind of like community thing breaks out and it shows the best in people I find. Yes, yes. Because it shows people's real character. Yeah, like well. you, I mean, you know, God knows that in the country that we can be up each other's arses in terms of looking for information and everything else and mm-hmm. playing tricks and all that kind of thing. But something like that happens, everyone shows that it's the best side out. You yeah, know, it's yeah. Bright side forward and all this kind of thing. And that's yeah. great to see. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? Because mm-hmm. even like um, grandfather's feeling now was all you know, it was personalised, you know, everyone kind of did readings that were poems that he liked, you know, there was a guy mm-hmm. at the end where um, when we were walking with the coffin, now we didn't know what was happening, he just decided to do it himself, but randomly just got up and started playing a tune on an accordion, right, Um, that would have been one of my granddad's favourite songs, like. But he took it upon himself. He took it upon himself. He did, yeah. We didn't know, like, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm sure... I don't, people, I don't think anyone really... Yeah, no, like, no one knew, like, except probably the people that are sitting in the seat going, what's this Egypt doing here with a fucking box, like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, he got up, did that, and then just kind of instinctively, I was, we're kind of... Because when you're in Swinford Church, you're kind of, there's a big, long walk out, but coffins have to go out the side door because you can't actually get out the back door. It's not big enough. <laughs> So you're kind of, <laughs> right. you're walking, you're walking forward, you come into the middle of the church, and you have to go right, turn right. And as we did that then, because he was standing in like the seats where that break was, and he was just there, and I caught him with the corner of my eyes, any good Mayo man would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I stopped. So because of that, everyone kind of sort of lurched forward, and I held the coffin with me like that. Oh, right, okay. And yeah. all it was then was that everyone else stopped, so that we stopped there, stood with the coffin until he'd finished playing. Right. And then we walked out. 
Mm-hmm. And when, like, stopped the coffin, did that, then walked out, the whole church went clapping. Wow. Do you know? Yeah. And it was a big statement for me because that church holds about 2,000 people and the place is nearly full. Wow. Now, he was 94 at the time when he died. And it's kind of maybe that last sort of generational thing. But there was a huge amount of people that came from all over for that. Like. Mm. But it was just the clap at the end that I always remember. And that's just kind of like, you know, it could have been a celebrity. It could have been a politician. But it was just a normal man that lived a normal, quiet country life, yes, raised a yes. family, and that was it. Like, yeah. And from that day as well, it was kind of like you felt sort of a generation or a way of life. Had just, that was it. It had ended. And you're not going to see that again. But but do you think that has ended? Because I, I like I've not many recently, but like in, in films we you know our age group would go to and people are in their thirties, forties. I still don't think that thing has ever gone away though. Like we haven't lost the thing, yeah. that exact thing you're talking about. I don't like people still come to pay their respects and do it. Yeah. There's a very funny one actually. I remember uh, <laughs> someone just because obviously we I suppose Irish people are very dark sense of humour. Yeah. But um, I remember a, a friend friend the family for and um, this guy. I was used to work with, and uh, he went along with his mother. Now he was in his you know, 50s, whatever. You know, the way when you get up to the front of the church and there's a line of people at the yeah, front. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's got, everyone's going down the line, everyone sort of wants to say the right thing. Oh, sorry, you're lost. So, you know, say the minimum, you know, typical Irish sort of doff, you know, doff the cap or whatever. Mm. And uh, he's going down, and uh, the widow was there, whatever. And obviously, it is, it's just hilarious afterwards, not at the time, but he was there shaking her hand, and uh, she, she turns around and she goes, Thank you, thank you so much for coming. And he turns around and he goes, "But oh, geez, any time, any time." Yeah, yeah. And like, oh, like the, his his mother, like his grandmother, that, that, that stage, the, the shoulders going, yeah, the, yeah. the, the nerves. Yeah. Like, yeah, I try to remember when I was younger. I, I apparently, well, like I don't really remember mm. this. I remember we told this. Like I was six or seven, and the coffin came by me, like my right hand side, and I was standing in the yeah. pew, or and I turned, and I was like, "What's in the box?" <laughs> you, you know, it's. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it holds a certain play, place yeah. in probably Irish people's lives. Well, I know that particular day, there's a lot of different things at play. And I remember at the end, so what actually happened was we were obviously the last with the coffin, and then of course, you know, the family is behind. Yeah. But the priest and all that, like, I have an aunt that's a nun, so of course, there's every priest in a connery, which is the diocese that we live in, that was there, like. Yeah. So this big whole court, it was like a papal funeral. This whole <laughs> cortege of priests go out the door. And next thing then, because we were there for five minutes after they had walked in, all you see kind of around the corner is someone poking their head in because they're all standing outside, kind of wonder why the coffin wasn't coming out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of that thing of, again, we're showing the change too, where if you did that 50 years ago, yeah. the priest would probably come in and go, what are you doing? Get out of here, like, you know, yeah, wasting yeah. my time. Like, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I did just, just as well, something I picked up there and what you said in terms of, you know that that difference in you know in rural urban urban. I think as well of its place as well and knowing your place. I think yeah. I've a keen sense that I suppose in the west or in rural Ireland that you're aware of that because I remember you saying before like getting the bus and you know the bus drivers. You sort of know them by name, but you sort of have this instant rapport of place. Oh, you're from Spencer or Spencer. Yeah. You're from you know you're from uh, Castle Bar. Yeah. I think that's that's a very special thing rurally as well. You, you know, you know them by the place, nearly the road yeah. and the lane they live well, on. It's like, like when uh, it happened to where when I moved into Cowes Lane and Temple Bar back in 2013 and when I called the landlord, just, you know, making sure that he was aware that someone was moving into his apartment and he was just like, all right, yeah, and just got my name and things like that. And when I said my last name, he just goes, oh, that's a great West of Ireland name because he was from Galway. Right. And he was like, oh, that's a good Mayo name, you know, and it's just kind of like that thing that I don't think people in Dublin or in urban areas realise that, you know, it's kind of like everyone has a, a profile and everyone else like, it's like, oh, that's, you know, Joe and Joe from the town of Swinford, but he's out Neelick direction. <laughs> this type know? of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's... he's, you know, down the end of the bog road, you know, kind of, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. so there's all that that goes on. And um, I mean, it's, it's because of that the post service here in Ireland has lasted as long as it has <laughs> because there's no other country, we're the only country again in the Western world that doesn't have uh, zip codes. Now we do have zip oh, we do codes, have, but we, people we, don't use them. We don't use them. We just so, decided, they came in and yeah. we're like, no, we're not using that. So again, it's just kind of like, until Ambrose retires <laughs> doing the rounds or I'm living in Mayo, like yeah. it's not going to change. Like everyone knows that there's only one McNicholas family in Sweetwell and if it's, you know, addressed to one of them, it must be going to that house and not, not, not anywhere else. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they won't be looking up to see now, can they find, you know, D08, you know, AX25 or something like that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, but I think maybe just to, just to, to finish up or, or, or tie us up this evening, the, in terms of like that, and then going abroad 
you, you know the you know the classic thing you were saying before. You know the the man Mayo man with yeah. the majors. You know WrestleMania and all yeah. over in the middle of you know the outback. Mm. Like does does that as well? Like how do we we seem to do great when we're abroad because when we're outside Ireland, it's sort of like like I, I said already about the, being in France for the soccer. It's mm-hmm. like when you're over there, it's like the best of Irish, and you just latch on. Like you could be the top of the Himalayas, and you'll bump into Joe, oh, you're from Ireland, yeah. Grant, you know, and you're off, you know, you have that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe we're a small country that helps, well. like, you know, maybe two people from Germany bump into each other, like, you know, you're from Germany, you know, but like, in Ireland, I think it's a bit different. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's sad, you know, it's kind of with this thing of like, uh, always kind of, it's in, it's in the blood, I think, the whole emigration thing, when you're abroad, it's kind of like another Irish person, it's like that whole sort of, you know, camaraderie. Mm. Um, Whereas you said, I think if two German people met, it's just like, oh, you're from Bavaria, and I'm from Hamburg, but that'd be it, like, it wouldn't be anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where we'd be there going, Jesus, you know, what part of what part of Waterford are you from now? Are you around the, you know, the, are you from the town itself now, or are you from somewhere else? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, or what Cork, or what part of Cork, and, yeah. you know, you'd, you'd be finding out things about people. Yeah. But just what I mentioned there before as well, the whole thing about the kind of the political separatism, just that rural, you know, urban thing mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. It's not that, like, you know, we're profoundly different. It's yeah. just that um, in a lot of cases where you'd have different things, you know, in the city, you know, there's obviously very different issues in rural Ireland than there are in urban areas. What well, isn't the, cl- the classic yeah. all politics yeah. is local? Yeah, and that's reflected, though, in the divide where, you know, people like socialists, you know, labour or people for profit mm. will do well in cities and urban areas where they won't get a single vote in the country. Yeah, and well, then yeah. What, what about our friends down there in Kerry? Like, you know, is well, that... this is what I'm getting to yeah, because yeah. it's political separation because we have our own agenda and we're <laughs> just pretty much like, and you know yourself, we're out for everything that we can get. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's the potholes fixed, the you know the the Manhattan Bridge put in there between the Shannon and you know things yeah. like that. And, and uh, that, we, yes, there you go on. Yeah, go on. But we award we award cute tourness, and we like cute tourness, and that's why you'll see the Healy raised on and Kerry constantly getting elected. Why you'll constantly see Michael Lowry Tipperary and Matty McGrath being elected. Yeah, and to some extent you'll see it in there as well. But that's why these always tend to be independents, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Yeah, like I don't think now I'd have to look back on it, but I don't think Mayo has ever elected a TD for Labour. Yeah, do you know, or, or why, why the Greens don't do well? And the Green, because again, yeah, but yeah. the Greens are their own problem now. They're the office of their own demise. Like you know, I mean, they need to get their heads out of the ground altogether. You know, I know obviously they're there to protect the ground, but like, you know, they they have to if they want to survive as a political party, they need to get the bigger issue there now. You know, and stop because people, you see. Farmers are kind of always looking at them going, oh, well, they're bad for agriculture because yeah, they, maybe, all they yeah, talk yeah. about, like, they could talk about, obviously, you know, you do have to bring down CO2 emissions, yeah. that kind of thing, yeah. but you could do it in a less dramatic way. You know, it's not like all oh, all those cows over there, we need to shoot them all because otherwise... <laughs> oh, well, no, I don't like, think they're advocating that. No, but I'm like, just yeah, saying, but that's, yeah, yeah. no, but I'm giving you, this is what people think. Yeah, on the extreme. So, like, if you... Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm talking, I'm looking at, I'm there and I'm looking at Tommy and Tommy's in, you know, Ban Lagar in Roscommon and right. the Green Party are coming out, you know, about CO2 emissions and reductions in agriculture. And literally, Tommy is going out the door and I'll talk to someone across the way at Strokestown mm. and go, Did you hear what that lad from the Greens is saying about shooting the cows? Yeah. You know, because they're releasing too much gas. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And they, that's their livelihood and they feel like they're going to be out of pocket. Yeah, so there's this kind of yeah. like, obviously, it's not the, you know, they, mm. they mightn't have the story right, whatever, but there's a threat. They're seen as a threat yeah. to a way of life. And yeah. that's why they will never do well outside of. You know, suburbia or urban or urban Ireland then, until but, they address. Yeah, that. but then does urban Ireland look well, like generalising? But look to you know, look at the the election of like independent TDs and the Healy Rays and all, and they can't really get their head around. It's like, well, you know, what are you electing him for? Like he's just yeah, saying the popular see, thing. Yeah, I know that he's saying the popular he, thing. Yeah. But again, he's doing like I mean, a lot of people are not lax about politics, but they will vote according to who's helped them out. Mm. You know, like. In my family, they'll switch. Like they'll vote Fianna Fáil, they'll vote Fianna Gael, they'll vote. Well, they haven't voted Sinn Féin, but like they would vote for different parties. But it's not the party they're voting for; it's the individual. Yeah. So yeah. there might be a guy. There's actually a councillor in Swinford that people particularly like, but he's Fianna Fáil, mm. and people elect him not because of the Fianna Fáil, but because of who he is. You know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that happens a lot as well in rural Ireland. So mm-hmm. it's not people don't necessarily vote on party lines. It's all kind of who the person is and who's yeah, done yeah. the work. And a lot of people will say that they only vote for who does the work. That could be Sinn Féin, could be the Greens, could be Fianna Fáil. 
Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Just so happens it's been Fine Gael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're to look at the polls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, well, I think that sort of wraps us up. We've got our, our first uh, show in the calendar, first uh, podcast view from Heights, myself, Karen Casey, and, and Pat McInglis. Um, thanks very much for listening listen to us. If you uh, down, download us on your on your commute or anything into work, um, we really appreciate it. Um, and hopefully um, might do another couple of these over the next few weeks. You if, never uh, know. If the demand is there, you never know. Um, but thanks very much uh, for listening, uh, and goodbye.